Hello, and thank you for uh, tuning in uh, for today's event hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I'm Brad Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. I'm honored to be joined today by Commander of U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, for what I believe is an extremely timely and important discussion. A career surface warfare officer, the Admiral served on guided missile cruisers, guided missile destroyers, aircraft carriers, and amphibious assault ships. Ashore, he served in a variety of executive, military assistant, and special assistant roles in the White House, the Office of the Secretary of Secretary of Defense, U.S. Africa Command, and U.S. Uh, Pacific Fleet Headquarters. Today, he has a critical role as head of NAVCENT, which includes both U.S. Fifth Fleet and combined, combined maritime forces, uh, which, as we'll discuss, has a vital mission in maintaining stability and security in the maritime environment in the Middle East and beyond. Just a few quick words about FDD for our viewers before we get started. FDD is a nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. We accept no funds from foreign governments. For more information on our work, visit us at fdd.org and find us on Twitter at FDD. With that, I'm very pleased to jump into today's discussion. Vice Admiral Cooper, thank you again for making time uh, to join me for this discussion. Hey, thanks so much for you making the time. It's a real honor and privilege to join. Look forward to it. Well, thank you. And thanks for your service and all that you do, you and your family. Thank you. Well, I'd like to uh, organize our conversation um, perhaps by talking about your current position and responsibilities, maybe the importance of the region, uh, the threats and challenges and opportunities that you see and 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 how you and your great team are, are, uh, are and that you lead are, are responding to all that. So with that, let's jump right in. Um, you know, obviously, you know, and I know, but some of the viewers may not. Uh, what is U.S. Naval Forces Central Command and Fifth Fleet? What's the bottom line? Yeah, I think it's a terrific question to get things started. <laughs> First of all, we're the headquarters for all the U.S. Naval Forces operating here in the Middle East. Uh, the NAF sent side of this is the U.S. Navy service component that's under U.S. Central Command, who's the combatant commander. And then Fifth Fleet is the U.S. Navy's number of fleet headquarters here in the region. And if I just try to capture you know, the number of people, we have about 8,000 people here overall, 6,000 of whom are active uh, duty and reservists, around 1,200 or so are family members, uh, 500 DOD civilians and about 300 contractors. So that's, that's, that's kind of where we are today. And uh, the, this, the people side in particular, obviously at the heart of everything we do, uh, this team is doing tremendous work every single day. Uh, and uh, as we, you know, move forward in the conversation, I'm hoping to highlight the great work that they are doing that I'm just so proud of. For sure. No, thank you for that. No, that's really helpful. So um, you, you kind of described who and what. So just in terms of your portfolio or, you know, a military term AOR, the area of responsibility that you have and your responsibilities there, how, how would you describe basically your portfolio and responsibilities and, and kind of the region that you're looking at? Yeah, like other leaders uh, at this level, I have a number of hats. Uh, in terms of our organizational construct. So one of them is uh, I command the U.S. Naval Forces under those NAV, SENT, and Fifth Fleet hats. Uh, I also command a, a, a force called the Combined Maritime Force, which is the largest multinational maritime partnership in the world. Uh, we've got uh, 38 nations represented here. Uh, when it was first established about uh, 20 years ago, it started with 11, so a, a, a pretty significant increase, yeah. uh, most recent of whom has been India. And then the uh, final hat is I'm the commander of the International Maritime Security Construct, which is 11 member nations focused on really deterring attacks against commercial shipping in the region, 
uh, and reassuring uh, partners and the shipping industry. No, that's and, great. No, sorry, go ahead. I mean, yeah, and, just to, and I think it's uh, healthy to characterize. You know, there's a lot of hats because there's a lot of space out here. The water <laughs> space here is really dynamic and vast. Uh, but when, when we think about how we deploy ourselves, it really is to the concept of working by with and through our partners. Mm-hmm. And that's important because the vastness, as I look at it and define it, is 5,000 miles from the Suez all the way around the Arabian Peninsula into the um, Arabian Gulf. Uh, the distance from the Suez down to the Bablement, about the Bablement Strait itself is about the length of the entire U.S. eastern seaboard. So these are really wow. large distances. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, and we can talk about this, the waters are just critical to the uh, to all the global economy just writ large. No, that's a great point. And I'm reminded that, you know, people often talk, certainly here in Washington, a lot of people talk about uh, global maritime choke points, right? And you, you've got at least two or three of them, arguably right there in your area of responsibility that you said are vital to international commerce and, and also the movement of our military forces. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Suez Canal, Bowman and Dev, and the Strait of Hormuz. Exactly. We'll talk about it. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Um, I have to ask just on a, on a, on a uh, personal level, I am curious, how did a, uh, before we move on, how did a son of a career army officer end up going to that other academy, that Naval Academy and joining the U.S. Navy? I have to ask. Yeah, you know, like many military kids, we moved around, lived in army bases, which I really uh, enjoy doing. I have a great love uh, and respect for the army. My father was in the army, my grandfather, my great grandfather. Uh, but I really wanted to try something different and uh, not so unlike a lot of teenagers who make uh, unusual choices based on a variety of things. Yeah. Mine were, I thought the Navy's white uniforms were great. And I thought the bases <laughs> were in great places. Navy's San Diego, Jacksonville, yeah. Florida, Hawaii. Uh, yeah. Those weren't the places I necessarily lived yeah. uh, in army bases. Yeah. But, you know, that uh, from the 16 or 17 year old then to now, uh, the 35 years or so, it's been a real honor and privilege to, yeah. to be. So you didn't want to spend time in Fort, Fort Irwin, California then, huh, is what you're saying? Uh, <laughs> some, some, you know, Fort Huachuca, Arizona, <laughs> uh, uh, some, some wonderful places. And again, I, I have great, yeah, yeah, great yeah, respect yeah. for the Army. Yeah, and, totally. Yeah, it's culturally totally. a little bit different. Yeah, no, I'm a former Army officer. Spent a little time in Fort Huachuca, Arizona myself in the uh, Military yeah. Intelligence Advance course. Actually, uh, one of my kids was born there. So exactly. It's very good. All right. So, um. So someone may be watching this and say, okay, uh, well, you know, prestigious career, um, uh, really important issues there. Um, but, you know, uh, everything I'm hearing in the news is about, uh, you know, is about the Indo-Pacific and, and Europe. Um, you, you know, why should I, as an American, busy with my life, raising the kids, paying a mortgage, you know, why should I be concerned about the Middle East? What are, so here's my guess, I guess my question for you as someone who's really I'd say an expert on the region there. What are U.S. interests in the Middle East from your perspective? What do you, what, why do you think um, we need to be uh, there? And what do you think of the interests that we're trying to protect there? Yeah, I think uh, if, I, if, if I begin with this, just a really broad overview, you know, it starts with um, the free flow of commerce throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And then if I broke it down here in the Middle East, it's the free flow of commerce and the sustainability of that commerce through those three critical choke points, the Suez Canal, Babylon Deb, and Strait of Hormuz. It is clearly in our national interest to maintain that free flow of commerce. And the way we do it uh, and we guard those interests uh, is by with and through our, our partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the mechanism is uh, pretty well set by working through them, we establish regional maritime security and stability, which leads to that free flow, that free flow of commerce. So doing this you know, critical work together with our allies 
is, is important. It's deterring aggression, disrupting terror networks, maintaining that freedom of navigation in, in these critical waterways. And we've had some tangible results. So in the last couple of years, our forces, along with side our partners, have seized about 15,000 illegal arms and about a billion dollars in illicit drugs. And yeah. you know, so I, I'm a firm believer that great things are possible when our maritime forces can plan together, train together, operate together, and then lead together across the region. And, that, and that's exactly what we're doing. That's great. And you started to touch on it there. I'd love to just dig a little deeper. And so um, in terms of, you know, what we'll call the headache portion here of our discussion is, um, you know, the biggest, you know, as you eye those interests that we as a nation want to protect, um, you know, what do you see as the biggest threats to those interests in your region? You mentioned terrorism and smuggling, some other things, but we'd just love to hear a little bit more from you on, on the threats to those interests. Yeah, first, I think that any destabilizing maritime activity or events that really impede the navigation, uh, one, they have their, their attention. It's because the waters are vital to that global trade, as we just discussed. Uh, clearly, Iran is the most serious threat in the region today. I uh, put it into essentially three main reasons. One is the ballistic and cruise missile advancements and their use and the proliferation of those weapons, uh, uh, proliferation in particular of the UAVs uh, and technology. And then two, the support of the proxy forces and the proliferation of ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and UAVs to the proxies. Uh, you know, they've been, these proxies have been engaging in acts of terror and really undermining regional security and stability. And then three, there's the uh, nuclear program, uh, with, uh, program that our, our diplomats clearly have to lead on. So I think there's really shared interest across the region on these threats, uh, which affords us and our partners the opportunity to further advance the regional maritime security cooperation, the construct of how we do that. No, that's great. And just for the viewers, I'll flag uh, that um, my colleague here at FDD, Ben Bentaldu, just published uh, this week, actually, a major monograph on Iran's ballistic missile program. It's uh, using both his English and Farsi skills. It's, it's as far as I can tell, the kind of the robust, robust, most robust report that I've seen on kind of the origins, evolution, character, uh, and, 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 and predictions about the future of Iran's ballistic missile program. So just flag that for viewers. I did a podcast on it that, with H.R. McMaster and Benham that was just released yesterday. So I'd flag that for viewers. And uh, Admiral, you mentioned Iran's drone program. Of course, a lot of viewers will, will know that Iran has sent some of their drones, including the Shahid 136, to Russia. And Russia has employed those drones uh, in Ukraine to kill Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians in their in their homes, men, women, and children. And so, uh, just a reminder from my perspective that Iran is not just a th threat in the Middle East, but it's 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 a global threat, including Europe and elsewhere. And of course, you mentioned the nuclear program as well, which um, which is is a topic of discussion. Uh, uh, Admiral, I'd love to um, talk just a little bit more about kind of the the weapons and drug smuggling that you touched on earlier you mentioned the number about the the number of weapons seized which is amazing right because every one of those weapons seizes a weapon that's not being used for nefarious purposes would welcome any more details you have on on some of the smuggling you're seeing in general or particularly stuff emanating from iran headed toward yemen for example and that sort of thing any, any more details you'd care to discuss on that yeah just a couple of pieces just uh, broadly uh, yeah as you characterize, the weapons are uh, flowing to Yemen from Iran. Yeah. Uh, these, uh, this uh, flow is illegal. It violates uh, UN Security Council resolutions. And so we have a variety of task forces uh, that are established to uh, both deter it, if at all possible, but interdict it when we can. And just in about the last 60 days, we've had 
four major interdictions, uh, which I think signal you know, the, the efficiency and the effectiveness of, of what we're doing. Uh, and just exactly as you described, uh, in, these, in these last two months, these last 60 days, we've had about 5,000 weapons, yeah. uh, about 1.6 million rounds of ammunition. That's, that's a lot of yeah. firepower that's no longer on the battlefield. No yeah. I think that's, I think that's helped. Everyone would agree that's, that's helpful. And we'll continue to, to press in, in that particular mission. Yeah. And it's, it's, and you don't have to comment on this unless you want to, but just, uh, you know, it's amazing to me that even as we see the regime in Iran doing horrible things to its own people and sending drones uh, to, for, to kill Ukrainians, there, we still see this smuggling, this illicit smuggling of weapons going to Yemen to arm the Houthis. Uh, and it's really that, I, from my perspective, that flow of weapon that kind of keeps that uh, you know we've had a we've have we've had a, a ceasefire for a while there, but kind of that keeps that that conflict going in some form, uh, and and that also facilitates one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. And so a lot of criticism goes to our Saudi partners, but uh, if those weapon if we really want a durable peace in Yemen, it seems like we have to focus on stopping that flow of weapons. And you and your team are playing a huge role in that. It seems to me. Yeah, it's a, it's important work. Uh, you know, I've characterized in different venues the malign activity of Iran has, has certainly continued. We've watched it, uh, and uh, an important part of what we're doing here is yeah. trying to deter it or or interdict it. Yeah, that's and great. Proud of the great work of the men and women that are doing it. It's been, it's been very successful. That's great. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into this more a little bit later, but I just want to give you a, com, uh, a chance, if you like, to talk about some of the cell drone incidents that we've seen with with Iran. Um, I, I, I know. Uh, so for the viewer, maybe you can describe it, Admiral. What are these cell drones? Uh, how are they good and helpful? And, and what have we seen Iran doing in, in, in recent uh, months in terms of, of the uh, U.S. cell drones in, in international waters? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let yeah, me yeah. start you know, kind of broadly for the viewers. Yeah. So about 18 months ago, we saw uh, the opportunity uh, to close uh, gaps in maritime domain awareness. MDA, yeah. for those in, uh, who aren't aware, is our ability to see and understand what's happening on, uh, below, and above the sea. Yeah. And given the vastness of the area, that 5,000 miles, our assertion is there's no Navy acting alone that can possibly cover that large area. And so you have to operate uh, just as a general concept with your partners. But even with partners, because it's such a big area, there, there uh, is just too much of a gap uh, that needs, that, that we have the opportunity based on emerging technology to fill. Uh, and so, and that's what we've done. So we've been using USBs, unmanned surface vessels. Mm -hmm. Just think eyes on the water, right. uh, extra sensors. Uh, with radar, cameras, controlled by satellite, communicating with satellite, to put eyes on the water to see what's out there. And, you know, we just go off in a quick excursion. So I think many people would recognize that UAVs, aerial, are, have been around for 30 years. The UUV, under the water, has been around right. for 10 years. But this USB really has only been around. The technology to effectively do it is about 18 months. So we got, we got on the cutting edge of that. We got on the leading edge of that. And we took the idea, which was a two-page point paper about 18 months ago, and turned it into a task force called Task Force 59, uh, the Navy's, uh, actually the DOD's first uh, unmanned and artificial intelligence task force. And over a period of time, we started putting these platforms, these USBs, out to sea, uh, and both experimenting and then operating with them. And we've done that very successfully. If I, you know, if I propel ourselves ahead to just 
uh, earlier this week. We just finished I think, our 16th exercise. We've had four, uh, three or four big multilateral international exercises. We've accumulated about 30,000 hours of experience. We've really established ourselves in this task force 59 construct is the most experienced in the world on how to operate unmanned surface vessels. And you know, 30,000 hours, you know, how does that translate? So that really is essentially Monday through Friday, nine to five for 13 years. It's just a gigantic amount of experience. Uh, so, so with that and operating throughout the region and putting those eyes on the water, it allows us to do a couple of things. One, it allows us to deter uh, events from happening. You know, this is the shopping mall uh, guard, uh, you know, the guard at the shopping mall effect. Uh, if you walk in the mall and you see a guard there, you're less apt to commit a crime because you think you might get caught. Same principle applies at sea. We're out there to deter. But then if something does happen, it would allow us to detect it and then respond more efficiently and effectively with the crewed ships uh, that we have. And so that's, that's how we, that's generally how we operate. Uh, and we also operate with these platforms in a teaming effort called a man unmanned teaming. So you'll have some number of unmanned surface vessels out there with a manned vessel, uh, you know, at some distance uh, in, in, in support, in oversight. Back to the original part of the, of the question about the sail drones. Uh, sail drone is one of the two general types of, of USBs that we have. Uh, this, this is a specific uh, company's name, but in this particular case, the types are long endurance uh, platforms that can stay at sea for a long period of time. So in this case, these drones have been staying at sea for 220 days. They don't pull in port. There's no maintenance. Uh, a really extraordinary sustainment that we would never be able to achieve with a manned ship. That's just not possible. And it's keeping eyes persistently on the water with persistent ISR in, in, uh, in military vernacular. Yeah. The second version is a high-speed interceptor. So we have uh, unmanned surface vessels that can essentially go about 100 knots that can respond you know, very quickly. And you combine the two along with a man ship and you find your stuff in a big spot. And that's 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 how we've been operating the general concept is to yeah. put these eyes on the water using those two different types of platforms. <clears throat> With respect to the Iranians, if I if I walk back, it's been about five or so we're coming up on about six months right now. You know, I think it's first important to point out that the Iranians attempted seizure of these platforms was uh, it was blatant, it was flagrant, it was unprofessional, but but most importantly it was an outright violation of international law. Uh, so you have that. Uh, since then, we've had six um, unmanned exercises. We haven't had any Iranian involvement. So I think we have a, a pretty good uh, charted course as, as we go forward. And importantly, just as we went through 20 or 30 years ago, when we started to fly UAVs, you can just imagine the conversations that took place when someone approached another country or another region said, hey, we're going to take this thing. It doesn't have a pilot, but we're going to fly it from point A to point B. That took a lot of coordination. And what I would just characterize as a lot of normalization of activity. We're going through a similar process now. It's just in a different domain. It's on the water. And fortunately, the technology is mature uh, to be able to do it. Uh, and our operating principle is we're going to operate uh, and fly and stay wherever international law allows and support our partners uh, to be able to do the same. And that's exactly what we're doing. So a lot of operations at sea all around the Arabian Peninsula. Long answer to a very short question. No, it's... Frame the, the broader uh, aspect of all of 
this. No, thank you sincerely. I, I thought that was helpful and excellent uh, and, and just commentary for me that you don't have to respond to. I mean, if if you look at kind of, if I look at it, the Islamic Republic of Iran's playbook, so much of it depends on um, asymmetric uh, terrorist and illicit activities that is not detected. And so if, if you're, you're describing something where we're putting eyes and ears, persistent eyes and ears on the water, uh, that it makes it harder for them to do things that aren't detected. And so it's not surprising to me at all that they would not like that and want to um, to stop it. And so we've had these incidents you described where they literally would come and correct me if I'm wrong, grab some of our uh, some of these out of the water. And, and when our when our when our vessels and helicopters arrive, you know, they, they put them back in the water. In one instance, I, they actually kept them uh, if I if my research is correct for you know, overnight and that sort of thing. But uh, you can see that this is really troubling for them because it's it's, it's uncovering their illicit smuggling activities and, and some of their uh, poten potential efforts to, to harass or even attack maritime shipping. So I, I just think it's what you're doing there is, is really important, this way you're combining technology uh, to defend one of our core interests and, and freedom of navigation. So I just, I, thanks for the rundown on that. I think thought that was excellent. Um, We've, uh, just finishing up the headache section, if we can here, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, China, that's over there in the Indo-Pacific, Russia, that's over there in European command. But, you know, that's not the case. Anything that you'd like to say to the viewers or tell the viewers about in terms of the activities of China and Russia in your area of responsibility? Yeah, I, I would just broadly uh, say that um, what we focus on every day with our partners is to remain the partner of choice in the region. And we want to be the number one partner of choice. It's strategic competition, and I, I want to be first. And so when I, if I, and I can, I can confidently tell you, is we look around the region, uh, there's 15 countries uh, in the maritime. I can confidently tell you there's 13 of them who view the United States Navy as their partner of choice. There are two who don't. Iran views uh, China uh, as their partner of choice, and Syria views Russia. Mm -hmm. So I think big picture, uh, we really do overall find ourselves in a good position for a number of reasons. Uh, let me give you a couple, a little bit of data on this. Sure. So in 2021, the U.S. Navy conducted 33 uh, partner engagements throughout the region, exercises, other, other big events. Last year, we more than doubled that as a sign of our commitment to the region at over 70. And this year, we're what, six weeks into the, into the year, seven weeks into the year, we've already done 15. So we're on a really strong trajectory. If you compare that to what uh, Russia and China have done over the same period of time, I could count the total number of engagements on one hand. Mm -hmm. So we're just really in a completely different position vis-a-vis uh, -vis our partners in the region than either of those countries are. That's great. And, and uh, we've done a bit of research here at our Center on Military and Political Power on, on military exercises in the Middle East, not, not only naval, but uh, land and air exercises. And uh, from our humble foxhole here, everything you're saying is exactly right, that uh, really a, an impressive exercise uh, regimen. Um, and of course, as you know, but some of the viewers may not, I mean, these exercises improve the readiness of our own forces. It improves our ability to work with other militaries. And it sends a very positive deterrent message to our adversaries and a very positive assurance message to our, to our allies and partners. And so, so that's great. Um, anything you want to say about the Chinese base in Djibouti uh, for the viewers, you know, the first major overseas base, overseas base that the Chinese established was in Djibouti, right near one of those maritime choke points that we've been discussing. Any, any comments on that or more, in, or more general of China's efforts to establish new, new bases potentially in the region? Yeah, I just broadly say the uh, PRC has a base, as you, as you articulated, in Djibouti. It's fairly small. It does offer them you know, some abilities to sustain their forces in the region. 
they have historically had uh, three ships in the region that tend to operate in the western Gulf of Aden. Um, we know where they are. We know how they operate. Uh, they are not generally a concern from yeah. a tactical perspective, but uh, broadly, we does offer a sustainment base uh, for the uh, Chinese. Yeah, excellent. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, so uh, with uh, with that discussion, maybe we can move to kind of uh, the aspirin portion here. Um, and we've started to touch a little bit on some of the great work you're doing. Um, uh, but is there anything more, you know, with with what you've already said about exercise, is, is there anything more that you would like to say about some of the bilateral and multilateral exercises that you've uh, that your team has been conducting and, and how we might be growing those in the future? Yeah, I, I think big picture is important to uh, and you hit on this a little bit. You know, why do we do these exercises? Yeah, it really is a reflection of our commitment to the region. So it's one thing to say you're committed. I believe the most uh, the most prudent thing, the most artful thing to do is actually execute things together, you know, deeds, not words. Yeah. And so our commitment in this region manifests in a lot of different ways and exercise, the exercise regimen is a great way for that to manifest. You get together, it's, it's, it's a win-win on learning for both sides. Everyone improves. It's a sign of our commitment. And uh, just in broad terms for the Navy here in the region, I would tell you, sometimes we operate unilaterally. Uh, more often we operate bilaterally, but most of the time we are operating multilaterally with yeah. multiple countries in the region in both exercises and, and a lot of real world operations, particularly uh, on the interdictions of both drugs and weapons. So I think that's, I think that's the big picture. It's also a, uh, just a, a couple of closing thoughts in this regard. Um, you know, we've been doing this for many, many years, this operating construct of buy with and through our partners. So that's, that's not new. I think what is new is just how we do it uh, through unmanned, and we can talk a little bit about this, is, is one way. It's also more broadly when we talk about our commitment to the region. Uh, I'll share with you the same thing I share with you know, a lot of, of uh, leaders in the region. You know, it's about how we engage and, and engaging with the navies, engage with ships are very important. And you know, it's, of course, it's my orientation to talk about ships all the time. But as I tell people, uh, as a matter of priority, there are really four important ships that everyone should keep in mind. They're always going to be the four most important ships that we employ. And they are relationships, partnerships, friendships, and then they're all woven together with shared leadership. So that's how we, that's, that's the broader component of how we operate and how what we're thinking about uh, in our engagement with the partners and our exercise routine. That's great. You, uh, thank you. you. You touched on the combined maritime forces earlier, this, we'll call it the CMF. Um, and and what a what a large entity that is with all, so many different uh, nations involved with that. Would, do you want to talk just a little bit more about that and how that's a kind of helping you accomplish uh, shared uh, protect shared interests and accomplish your mission there in the region? Yeah, let me talk about the two uh, sure. large sure. Uh, coalitions that, uh, that that we have the privilege of leading here uh, in Bahrain. One is the Combined Maritime Force and the International Maritime Security Construct, yeah. whose tactical arm is Task Force Sentinel. So on this on CMF. Uh, it is organized uh, under uh, the flags of 38 uh, nations, you know, very large. And I'll share with you, we also just uh, extend invitations to another 20 plus nations to join. So in this process, you know, it takes anywhere from months to years, but we'll see where that goes. But it really, it's, it's a very large uh, maritime partnership. Like I mentioned earlier, it's the largest in the world. Operationally, it's broken into four operational task forces, CTF, 150, 151, 152, and 153. I'll briefly talk about them. 150 does uh, maritime security, 
and our drug interdiction effort in particular in the Gulf of Oman uh, and the North Arabian Sea. CTF-151 is the counter, and I should add, and CTF-150 today commanded by the UK. Mm. If we had this conversation two months ago, it was commanded by Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see the multinational nature as I walk yeah. through all yeah. these. Uh, CTF-151 is the leading counter piracy. Today, it's commanded by Republic of Korea uh, leadership. Last week, it was, uh, they just took over from Brazil last week. CTF-152 does security in the Arabian Gulf uh, in general and uh, with GCC nations, and it's commanded by Bahrain. And then CTF-153, we just established it about 10 months ago yeah. so that we have a greater focus on Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. Uh, today is uh, led by Egypt, uh, yeah. which is their yeah. first time leading yeah. the coalition. So that's CMF doing terrific work, yeah. 38 nations and growing. IMSC, uh, the tactical arm again, whose task force sentinel uh, is three years old. You may recall uh, in the summer of 2019, where there was a series of kinetic attacks by Iran in and around the Strait of Hormuz, IMSC grew from those attacks as a mechanism to both deter malign activity uh, in and around the Strait, as well as the Battle of Mandeb, and reassure our regional partners. So the coalition today is doing great work. They're stronger than ever. It was originally three countries. Now it's 11. Uh, I expect that number to grow here throughout the year. Uh, and again, both doing really terrific work. No, thank you for that. On the uh, combined maritime forces, one question I did want to ask you, you mentioned how there's 38 nations and how invitations have gone out to 20 nations. Um, I did want to ask about Israel. As, as the, some of the viewers may know, Israel was uh, a few year, a couple of years back moved from European command's area of responsibility to central command's area of responsibility. Uh, and you uh, and you, you mentioned how 20 nations were invited to join. You also mentioned Combined Task Force 153, which, as you said, is responsible for the Red Sea. And you mentioned how Egypt is currently leading that, which I think is noteworthy and very positive for my part. Um, it seems to me it would make sense for regional security. It would make sense in the context of, you know, Abraham Accords. It would make it makes sense for kind of all involved to invite Israel to join the Combined Maritime Forces and maybe participate formally in Combined Task Force 153. Is there anything anything you can uh, update us on with respect to that? Yeah, we prudently uh, allow each country to speak on their own behalf of what yeah. their interests are and, and in their timeline and desire to join uh, these coalitions. So I, I probably defer to, to uh, Israel to let them talk about that from their perspective. Yeah. Entirely separately, although it is related, I will say, the Israeli Navy is, is incredibly capable and proficient. They're outstanding to work with. And for sure, on a bilateral basis, when we're operating together in the Red Sea, that we add value added. Uh, there's value added to maritime security, maritime stability, that free flow of commerce. And of course, that's good for everybody. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and just, uh, you don't have to respond if you don't want to, but it seems to me that uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran strategy is to divide its adversaries, to divide, to distract, and weaken. That's, you know, I use the three Ds for what, you know, what they're trying to do. And so conversely, it seems to me the more that we can unify our coalition, and just as you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, to create a more unified and capable coalition to push back on, on their activities, the better. Um, and so it seems to me that adding Israel to the CMF and 153 might be a, a positive step. And uh, I could be wrong. My understanding is that, that they would love to join. <laughs> They're just kind of we're waiting for some of that to be worked out. But we can move on from that. The um, the uh, I, I'd love to ask you, uh, you know, uh, something that you're you'll be well familiar with based on all your experience in the region. 
is a you know security architecture, a fancy term for you know for kind of institutions, habits, processes that we build to kind of promote security and stability in the region. I would highlight, as you know, but some of yours may not, that the U.S. Gulf Cooperation Council defense working groups met earlier this month, and and as as you and your team were intimately involved with, I'm sure one of them was focused on maritime security, kind of an area of of research and growing research here at FDD is is you know just what can we do to move toward a, a, a more effective security architecture in the region. So is there anything you can tell us about this U.S. GCC defense working group, particularly the maritime security element, and what you kind of see as the next milestones or steps in, in, in building a more positive security act, uh, architecture that protects our interests and deters um, behavior like that that we're seeing from the Islamic Republic of Iran? Yeah, let me try to take a kind of big picture and, and yeah. give you some tangible examples. I, I participated in the working group that was really outstanding, yeah. really focused in two areas, IAMD, yeah. uh, Integrated Air and Missile Defense, and Maritime Security. Yeah. You know, and if I just take the maritime security aspect, I think, you know, as I've described, you know, just given the vast and dynamic nature of the maritime environment here in the region, the value in strengthening and then expanding um, maritime cooperation, I think, is obvious. So our U.S. naval forces, as well as our international partners, including forces from GCC countries, the six GCC countries here in the, on the Arabian Gulf. Today, if I look at what are we doing, we're deterring, we're detecting, we're responding to regional maritime security threats. And frankly, we're doing it with some record-breaking results. And so that's effective. And so we want to make sure that we establish a foundation of where we are, we increase information sharing. There's a whole series of, of things that we're doing that are things that we've done uh, to some degree in the past that we're really pressing the accelerator on. And they've proven themselves uh, to uh, produce results. So I'll kind of come back to a couple of things I mentioned before. So just in the past couple of months alone, actually we've had five interdictions, now that I think about it, um, that came from U.S. and partner maritime forces, seizing more than, just think about this for a second, you know, I mentioned the 5,000 weapons. This is just a, essentially two months. 5,000 weapons, wow. the 1.6 million rounds of ammo. We've had about 7,000 uh, rocket fuses. We had about 2,000 kgs of propellant used to launch RPGs. We had over 20 new anti-tank guided missiles uh, and about $60 million worth of drugs. And of course, not one penny of those drugs is going to anything good. Uh, you can't really miss, always talk about exactly where it's going here because it's an intelligence matter, but I can guarantee you this is going to nothing good. So to me, uh, then, that's a little bit of the detail. If you zoomed out, numbers are really part of this two-year trend that I think are made possible by the tremendous amount of collaboration and leadership that we get from the GCC countries uh, and, our, and other partners in the region from those two multilateral uh, coalitions. Super, super happy with it, uh, and we're not one to rest on our laurels. So we, this is, uh, as was in the OSD press release, uh, we certainly achieved some things last year in this in the ensuing year we really pressed the accelerator in, in the results you know i can speak for themselves yeah you know these and, and and correct me if i'm wrong deference to your expertise here but the unmanned surface vehicles that we were discussing earlier and i've heard you talk about this in other fora and i, I thought very effectively uh, the way it extends our eyes and ears so instead of just having your sensors on land looking out to see you know if you put them 20 kilometers 40 kilometers, 60 kilometers, and they're persistent. They're there all the time. Just how that kind of extends the, to, like you said, to use the ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, how that enables a, a partner nation 
to really understand kind of what what's going on in the waters around their space and how that could feed into a common operating picture that is shared among partners in, in, in an agile way. One could see and doing that in the maritime regime and also in the integrated air and missile defense space, where you're really starting to build a security architecture that's good for us and good for our partners. Anything you want to kind of correct on what I said there or add to? Or Yeah, I think it's worth maybe just uh, uh, giving a, a little vignette for the viewers sure. on sure. You know, pragmatic uh, impact, positive impact that these platforms can provide, these ESVs. So I'll, I'll just play on how you describe it. So yeah. if you take any country in the region here, I know I just focus on the Arabian Gulf, yeah. the, you know, a country can today see you know, 30 kilometers off our coast, 18 to 20 miles, with yeah. the existing sensors and platforms that they have. Imagine now taking another unmanned surface vessel with radar, uh, high-end optics, satellite control, and satellite communication, and putting it out a little further. Once out there, it uses artificial intelligence to map what's around it. And when something is different, it will take a picture of it and send it back to the operations center. So instead of, so now you've extended your eyes further into the water than you had before. So instead of being, and we've done, we've measured this, instead of being able to see 30 kilometers, now you can see 60. Pretty significant. Okay, now I'll take another one, another USB and put it out even further. Now you can see 90. So yeah. you've essentially, for that country, tripled your maritime domain awareness. Yeah. Uh, that's for that country. Now multiply that by the nine countries in the region. Yeah. You get you exactly. to do the Alabama public school math on this. It's you know you just simply increase your your knowledge of what's happening around 27 times through a very very modest investment uh, and a high ROI. Uh, that's one aspect of it. The yeah. other aspect, you know, if I could just you know, you know pivot a little bit of how's this future? What's this? What, what does this look like going forward? You know, I I believe I've said in multiple venues that I think we're on the cusp of an unmanned technological revolution. Our CNO at Wagilde is very clearly articulated that our future path is building a fleet that's a larger hybrid fleet with manned and unmanned. You know, these unmanned platforms would be under, on, above the sea. And that's that would meet the nation's strategic and operational demands. And a key aspect of that is that speed matters. And yeah. you can't go talking about something you're going to feel in terms of capability or capacity and say, okay, well, let's, we're going to get it in the year 2043. It's just, that's just not good enough. Technology is moving too quickly. This is where Task Force 59 has really been very successful, using a different, a little bit of a different model, introducing these new platforms into the region. Uh, and because they're commercial dual-use technology, they offer an easy or no or low barrier to entry from other, for other partners to be able to use the same technology. We have information agreements all worked out. That's all. That's all done. Uh, so it's it's the here and now opportunity to be seized, and, and that's what we're doing. That's great. And, and you mentioned Task Force Fifty Nine. That's actually exactly where I wanted to go next. Um, just a little bit more for the viewers. What is Task? So Task Force Fifty Nine is focused on bringing this innovation in. Just anything more that you want to say on that? And, and understand that you have a one hundred USV fleet goal. Is that right? And, and and what is that? And when do you hope to achieve that by? Yeah, so I'll just say I'll hit a couple, a couple of high points on it. Sure. So about 18 months ago, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of an unmanned artificial intelligence task force was literally a two-page point paper. <laughs> uh, working with Navy leadership and with the CNO's approval, we established into a formal task force. And as we were doing that, we consulted, frankly, with all the top experts in the field of unmanned systems and artificial intelligence. In the course of doing so, we really realized there was this opportunity to establish this task force 
in a dedicated manner that we just hadn't done before yeah. because of the emergence of unmanned systems and that technological maturity and the ability to couple that with artificial intelligence in the maritime and do something and achieve things with domain awareness, i.e. eyes on the water, that we just hadn't been able to do before. So we're super proud of what we've done, working very closely with our partners uh, just in the last couple of weeks. It's not just the U.S. doing things. It's a combined task force. So we currently have uh, personnel from seven countries, U.S., Canada, France, Germany, Netherlands, Spain, and U.K. Uh, we'll have a, a Jordanian officer uh, join us here soon, and we've extended invitations to other uh, countries in the region. So they've really done terrific work. Then, you know, what I, I described earlier, you know, an enormous amount of operational experience, 30,000 hours, exercises I talked about before, operating all around the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, about six weeks ago or so, uh, we established it's an FOC, it's full operational capability, 16 months since establishment. So that's a significant goal. And then yesterday when I was in, in uh, Abu Dhabi, we also announced that we, that, uh, we are approaching uh, the halfway point to a broad goal, which is to have 100 USVs deployed throughout the region or available for deployment throughout the region here by the end of the summer. And so we're, we're coming up on halfway there. And the vision is to integrate these systems into daily maritime ops uh, throughout the region. And uh, I think we have good momentum here. I'm super proud of the entire staff uh, and the task force with my team, how far we've come. And I go back to uh, the CMU's point of speed matters. You, you got to go quickly on this because of the emergency and, uh, and, and speed of technological uh, movement. It's been great. No, that's great. Thank you for that. What a, a very helpful rundown. One question I just kind of habitually ask uh, uh, senior officers like yourself in important positions, just, you know, it's, it's probably the former Senate staffer and me, you know, nine years U.S. Senate working some of these issues. Um, what what do you need that you don't have? Or a, another way to ask the question, where would you spend one additional dollar? Yeah, actually, we've been resourced to uh, do exactly what I'm what we are trying to achieve, which is expand your time domain awareness. Uh, so uh, the CNO has resources to do that. Uh, and uh, I, let me just use the opportunity to talk about we're doing it using a little bit of a different model. I think many on 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 the line here would be familiar with the Palm process and and the time that takes, that's a necessary process. It's been around for, for some time. It's important to get everything right. We use a little bit different model where we scan the environment for the latest and greatest tech. We bring it out here, we provide an opportunity for that tech to get tested in the environment, it would ultimately deploy it. And in the course of doing so, you quickly find out what works and doesn't work. Yeah. And what does work, we put it to operational use. So I'll give you an example of how that manifested here in the last year. So last May, we teamed with uh, DIU, the Defense, Intelli uh, the Defense Innovation Unit, and uh, we generated a solicitation around the world. Here you hear you. We're looking for the best, the best unmanned surface vessels and, and UAVs, as well as AI platforms to come out here and conduct an exercise in the November, December timeframe. DIU got 105 submissions of countries around the world that says we, we have the best. And over a period of time, that got whittled down to uh, 17 companies providing 15 platforms, including about 10 of which we've not seen before. We connected a big exercise uh, called Digital Horizon in November and December. Really got to put this, uh, you know, match uh, what, what companies said were the best that they had and see it actually work. And we we're very happy with it. And uh, we really, frankly, exceeded uh, our own expectations, which were already very high. And I think, number one, it was a great example of how 
DOD, in our case, the Navy can work with uh, industry in a very meaningful and positive way, very positive. And we learned a lot, as you might have expect. We looked to replace, uh, uh, we looked to tweak that process just a little bit, but essentially we'll follow the same process this year. And what will it get us? We'll maintain currency on having the best platforms that exist in the world out here again. So that'll be fantastic. Okay. So I hear you saying uh, investments in both exercises and technological investments are, are, are paying big dividends there. <laughs> Is that a good? For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. Uh, and, we're, and we're taking advantage of what's, what American industry, because America yeah. is leading in this. Comparative uh, advantage for our country. For sure. And we're taking advantage of what's out there and putting it to operational use very quickly. That's great. Um, I in the clock here. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I could talk all day with you, but I know you. I know you have a, a navy to run out there. So, but uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, you uh, you assumed command wait what back in May 5th, 2021, I think. And and so, um, yeah. How much time do you have left there in command? And uh, you know, what are you most proud of uh, you and your team accomplishing so far? And and what are some of the remaining challenges you hope to address in 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 the time you have left in that position? Yeah, well, as, as you know from your Senate time, there's a process here. Uh, yeah, I have a relief yeah. who's been nominated. Yeah. We'll turn that over to the Senate and see how that goes. Yeah. So we'll see what the timing looks like. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of what, you know, what I'm proud of, you know, far and away uh, yeah. is the great work that the people have done here. Yeah. You know, every, I say this all the time, every success we have is starting the people, yeah. uh, everything that we have accomplished, and all the secret sauces really are about the people, what the people have done here. So that is far and away what I'm most proud of. Uh, also, certainly proud of the great work we've done with partnerships and relationships, uh, building on many years, if not decades, of good work uh, that have already uh, happened out here, just in new ways. Particularly, uh, you know, I highlight with uh, CMF, we recently integrated uh, uh, India into CMF, yeah, and uh, and the and the integration efforts in the in the wake of Abraham Accords yeah. and uh, Israel's shift into the region have also been also been you know noteworthy. You know, with those, you know, the challenge side of this uh, would be clearly Iran's um, destabilizing behavior. It's obviously something we're going to continue to work with regional partners, maintain that uh, rhythm and pace with exercises and engagement, uh, the information sharing, the intel sharing that we do is meaningful, uh, growing the partnerships, as I mentioned before, and and establishing that 100 USC fleet uh, yeah. going forward. You know, all said a different way, the things, the two things we're focused on most are strengthening the partnership piece and then accelerate innovation to achieve the results i described super exciting all enabled by people who are that's great oh thank you for that anything admiral that i didn't ask you that you wanted to cover any any closing uh, comments that you'd like to make no i think we I, I think we covered a lot i really appreciate the time and i just want to thank you you know and and the entire foundation for hosting the discussion and uh, others that are illuminating really important points i think on this this particular matter, but national security and foreign policy matters are really great. And I look forward to uh, sustaining the conversation. Thanks for all that you do. And we look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. No, thank you sincerely uh, for your service to our country in uniform, uh, the sacrifice of your family. And thanks to all the uh, the wonderful men and women that you lead that keep our country safe and stand between us and, and our adversaries who want to do us harm. So we don't take that for granted at all. Um, thank you for making time to join me for this conversation. And also thanks to our audience for watching. For those tuning in, if you are not already receiving updates from FDD, please visit fdd.org to subscribe to our work. Thank you for joining us and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.